We're, um, we're into our series on uh, the Dream Church, and um, if you weren't here last Sunday, um, can, I, can I really encourage you to um, uh, uh, have a listen to last week's podcast? I felt it was very foundational and an important base um, from which uh, this, this series is moving um, from. Um, I don't get any royalties for you listening to the podcasts or anything like that, so you just, just listen to it because it, it, I'm sure you'll find it really helpful. Um, this is a photograph uh, of, um, of our family, um, and I'll introduce uh, you to um, those folks in just, just a moment. Um, we're, we're an incredibly um, eclectic uh, bunch. We are very, very uh, different. Um, Louise is brilliant. This is this wonderful lady here. Um, she's brilliant at budgeting and saving. Me, I'm I'm gifted in spending. You know, we kind of um, um, our, our, our strengths kind of uh, miss each other there. Um, whereas I love um, I love cooking and entertaining. Uh, that's not Louise's strength. Although she did did highlight to me that she did cook me two meals yesterday. Um, toast and cheese on toast. <laughs> I was very, very, I was very impressed. We used to, um, uh, our house in Newcastle, we had a, an alarm, a fire alarm system, you know, a back to base system. And um, whenever Louise was cooking, the, the fire alarm would go off. And I got to the point where <laughs> you'd get a phone call from the, the fire company and you'd find, I'd say, oh, just my wife, she's, she's cooking. She's cooking. I went, oh, okay, we thought so. Uh, so I remember um, before we were married, Louise came over to where I was staying uh, and, and she said, I'm surpri surprised I'm going to cook breakfast for you this morning. I said, oh, wow, what a woman I've, I'm marrying. I was so excited. Anyway, she made um, scrambled egg and into that she put mashed potato and, and raw onion. And um, it, was, it was actually inedible. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't actually, I couldn't even pretend I was enjoying it. I was thinking, right, let's, let's call the marriage off here and now. I can't, I can't, I can't see, see this working. We do have something in common. We, we, love, we both love movies. The problem is we don't like the same kind of movies. She's into rom-coms and those historical dramas. I never knew there were so many versions of Pride and Prejudice. You know, so I kind of, I've seen this before. I'm sure, I'm sure I've seen this movie before. I've just got different actors. And, and I like kind of those art house kind of um, things that are really complex and you're kind of not quite sure where it's all going. Lou loves those. And, you know, so even where we have something in common, we're, we're kind, of, kind of different. Um, people marvel that our, that our three kids are actually uh, related because, uh, one, physically they don't actually uh, look uh, too much alike, but also personality-wise, um, you know, we are definitely the parents, but we're not quite sure how we, um, we, we produced three, three such uh, different kind of kids. Um, the best way um, to describe uh, Nate him in the corner there, um, is that he is unsophisticated. I was going to use another word, and he said, no, you can't use that word, and we agreed on unsophisticated. Um, and he's, and he's, um, uh, he's not academic either. Whereas um, Alex, uh, this is actually his graduation. We're all drinking um, sparkling apple juice, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Um, 
because that's what Christians do when they celebrate. They get a, a bottle of appetizer and uh, they drink that, red and white, so we're kind of... Uh, uh, <laughs> conf- confession time, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to go to a Christian's house with the two bottles of appetizer, a bottle of red and a bottle of uh, white sparkling apple juice. Um, Alex here is, is actually, he's a hipster. Um, he is, uh, not only is a hipster, he's uh, very, very uh, smart, very, very academic. Um, he uh, did a double degree and got first class honours. Um, so when it comes to the head, um, Alex trumps Nate, but when it comes to the things of the heart, Nate trumps Alex. You know, whenever we have uh, problems with Nate, uh, we always knew that he would come back uh, very, very quickly after, you know, we'd have to have words with him very, very quickly and he would come and apologise and say we're sorry. Alex, slightly different, a little bit more stubborn in that department. Alex, um, his work colleagues call him uh, Buddha and Gandhi. <laughs> um, and the reason is, is because he is so peaceful and calm. Now, you know whose uh, DNA he got there, don't, don't we? Um, <laughs> he's very peaceful and he's very calm and he's very, very organised. So they call him, they call him Gandhi and, uh, and Buddha at, at, at work. Our daughter, Chloe, who's currently uh, travelling and thank God for uh, FaceTime. We FaceTimed her this morning. She's in Florence. But Chloe um, is far from peaceful. She struggles with, uh, with anxiety and she is far from organised. She is unbelievably messy. You kind of go into her bedroom and you kind of think, oh my God. And then she likes to spread her mess throughout of that house. She is definitely not Buddha and definitely not Gandhi. No, she's not unique in that respect. Um, and so our family is largely um, characterised by, by difference. And, and those differences um, do lead to times of, um, of frustration and of uh, disappointment and exasperation and tension. But we're, there's something that holds us together despite the difference. And I think we've, um, you know, those six points that I shared last week, we, we try very hard as a family to um, apply and implement those six points. We're, we're committed to each other, even though those differences create all kinds of tension for us. We're committed to each other. Um, we do appreciate one another. Um, we also uh, do communicate well, sometimes um, too vulnerably at times. Um, we love to spend time with one another. Um, we cope with problems relatively well and um, I don't know about sharing spiritual values but we certainly talk about spirituality a lot in in our home and I think the other thing that also holds us together as a family despite our diversity despite our difference despite um, you know um, Nate is an extreme extrovert Louise is kind of like an extreme introvert and I'm an ambivert, so I'm, you can never tell whether I'm going to be out there or in there. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a stri- I, I, I love contemplation, and I love to be kind of charismatic and sing and, and jump around. So I kind of, you're not quite sure what you're going to get. 
Um, and so in the midst of, uh, of all of this diversity, we somehow believe that we're ultimately richer and better off because of our difference, not despite our difference. And I'm sure that if you were to analyse your family, if you've got, um, you've, got, you've got kids, you too would see the diversity that exists within, within your home. Now, there's one church um, that stands head and shoulders above all of the other churches in the New Testament. And that is the Christian community in the, the city of, of Antioch, um, which is, is, is modern-day is modern Turkey. And the, the, the Antioch church provides us, I believe, with a wonderful blueprint as to what a church looks like uh, when it's functioning well, when a church is healthy and when it's vibrant. And the very first thing that we discover about the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11 is that it was a church that coped really well with diversity. It coped really well with difference. And it, and, it, and, it, and it seemed able, the congregation seemed able to embrace and welcome in those who were different to the way they were. In Acts chapter 11 um, and verses 19 to 21, it says uh, these words. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's de death, that's, that, that was taking place in Jerusalem, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. But only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, about the Lord Jesus. So there being this persecution in the city, in the, in the church, in Jerusalem, and so some of the believers um, were scattered. And as they went, they began preaching the gospel to other Jews. But there was a small group, and, and this is the wonderful thing: there, there are the, these nameless individuals who went to the city of Antioch, and for the very first time, began to preach the gospel to those who were different. To them who were non non Jewish, and it says the the power of the Lord Jesus uh, was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. The church in Antioch was the first Christian community to open its doors to welcome and include non Jewish people. Up until this, this point in its history, um, Christianity had just been a, a sect or a, a, a branch of, of, of Judaism. So until this point in, in the story of the church here in the city of Antioch, people like you or me would not have been welcomed within the Christian faith. We would have been considered an outsider. We would have been unwelcome. There wouldn't be a place for us in the church. We didn't belong because we were different. But thankfully, all that changed when those who first preached the gospel in Antioch grasped that somehow the gospel message wasn't just for Jews and that the church could be open to others that were culturally different 
to those who had first received the message. And we don't quite grasp this, perhaps, but this was, this was the turning point. Acts chapter 11 was the turning point of Christianity. Who knows if these nameless um, individuals hadn't decided to break out uh, of, uh, of that, 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 that mindset that said Christianity is only for Jews. Perhaps Christianity today would still be a stream of Judaism. And people like you and me would never have got to hear the gospel of Christ. Not only was this the turning point of Christianity, but this was the turning point in which the Roman Empire began to crumble. And this is the turning point of certainly Western civilization. Acts chapter 11 Verses 19 to 21, this was the game changer. You see, Antioch was this large uh, metropo uh, uh, metropolis. Is that the right word? Did I metropolis? Yeah, it was a big city anyway. And um, it actually had about half a million people, which is back then was, was huge. It was only rivaled by, by Rome and Alexandria. It was a pretty um, cosmopolitan kind of place. We might talk about some of the things they got up to um, in Antioch in those days. Uh, it would have been like a kind of a New York, London kind of place. And it was this, um, this mix of East and West. There was cultural and, and uh, religious and ethnic um, uh, diversity. And what happened is, as this, as this church in, in Antioch was planted and as, as it began to grow, it actually began to reflect its surroundings. And those who belonged to the church in Antioch were a pretty good representation of the kinds of people that lived in Antioch. And that, that diversity was, was wonderfully expressed in its, um, in its leadership team. In Acts chapter 13, it, uh, uh, Luke, who is the writer of, the, of uh, the book of Acts, tells us that among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man. I don't know if that would be kind of, um, I don't know if that's appropriate, culturally appropriate to say today, but that's what it says. Uh, Lucius from Cyrene, uh, Manian, the childhood companion of King Herod, Antipas and Saul, who we know later became Paul the Apostle. And so this leadership team um, in, in this, this church in Antioch was a very, very diverse group. And I find it interesting that, that Luke um, doesn't just give the names of uh, the leaders, but he actually gives us a bit of a background as to where they came from because he's wanted to point out the diversity that existed in this church. So Barnabas, we discover, if you read, uh, and we'll, we'll do a, a session on Barnabas, who's a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he was a wealthy Jew. Then there was Simeon, this, this black man, and he was from sub-Saharan uh, West Africa, and he was probably either a slave or a servant. Then there was uh, Lucius, who was um, from what is modern-day Libya. He's from North Africa. And um, Lucius was probably also a slave or a servant. Then on this leadership team, there was a man by the name of Manian, and he was uh, Greek, possibly um, Syrian, but he was raised with King Herod, 
which means he was from a family of, um, of great wealth and political power and privilege and prestige. And then there was also this guy, Saul, who we know later became Paul. And Paul was a Jew, but he was a different kind of Jew because he was unique in that he had Roman citizenship. And he was a kind of a religious thinker. He was a rabbi. And he would have grown up despising Mannion. Because rep- Mannion represented everything that, that Paul, as a good Jew, despised. So there's this incredibly diverse group of people. Now, there is one exception to its diversity. Can anybody realize what it is? It's quite obvious when we point it out, but they're all men. It's diverse, but it has a, a limitation to its diversity because this was the church in its, in its infancy uh, and it was on its way, on a trajectory towards um, embracing women and leadership. As you track the, the, the book of Acts, you find that women were included in team and became uh, apostles. But right in the very beginning, they were kind of trying to work out what does this div- how far can we push um, this diversity? And it is so, so important for us today to understand how radical this acceptance of diversity was in its day. You see, Antioch was part of the Roman Empire and it operated with a very, very rigid um, class system. You didn't move between um, the various uh, uh, classes that were in place. And in fact, those boundaries were were actually legally enforced. Everybody knew where, where they belonged and they stayed where they belonged. Only under very, very rare circumstances did somebody shift from, from one uh, station in life to another. And so uh, there was a very hierarchical society. At the top, there was Caesar, who was classed as God. We call Jesus the Son of God. Well, Caesar was called the Son of God. All of the titles that we give to Jesus, they were the titles that were given to Caesar. Okay, And he sat at the top along with his, his family. And under Caesar were what were called the patricians. And they were the wealthy male elite who owned great swathes of land. And they provided the empire with their political and religious and, and military leadership. And then beneath the patricians were the senators who were the kind of the political class. And beneath the senators were the equestrians. Anybody guess what they were? They were ex Um, military uh, horsemen, um, retired Roman cavalry, and they were the tax collectors and the bankers and the exporters. So Caesar and his family and then the patricians and the senators and the equestrians, they were the empire's rich elite. They held all of the power. And they lived in these beautiful, extravagant homes that had uh, amazing lifestyles. They probably made up about 1% to 2% of the population. Then beneath this um, small um, elite were the plebeians. That kind of would have been, I think most of us would have said, we're, we're plebs. That's where the, you know, the, the plebs, that's where that, this term comes from. The working class poor. They were kind of, they're free Roman citizens who were farmers and artisans and, and tradespeople. And then finally beneath the plebeians were slaves who made up about a third 
of the population. And slaves were no more than just property. Um, If you were a slave owner, you could do whatever you wanted to your slave and there would be no legal repercussions. You could brand them. You could kill them. What you think, you think of it, you could do whatever you wanted to your slave because they were non-human beings. And so whilst it was this really multicultural um, society, the citizens of Antioch stayed and maintained within the social order. A person's place was fixed for life. You didn't move. That was the way in which the ancient world operated. And nobody up until that place, up until that time in history, ever thought of tampering with that until the church in Antioch changed everything. We would not be sitting here today if it hadn't have been for that, 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 the beginnings of that church saying, you know what? It's not fair that some people sit at the top and some sit sit at the bottom. And the radical action of the Antioch church, welcoming everyone regardless of rank, social status, cultural or ethnic background, gender or age, to worship and eat together as equals, turned the world upside down. We take it for granted today. We live in a relatively egalitarian society, but we owe it to the church in Antioch. It's because somebody said, you know what, just because somebody is different to me doesn't mean to say that we can't worship and eat together at the same table. And the big question is, where where on earth did they get this idea from that accepting people who were different and welcoming the outsider was okay. Where, did, where on earth did they dream that up? Where did they get that idea from? They got it from Jesus. They didn't have the New Testament back then, but what they used to do, would they would retell the Jesus story. And they would tell the story perhaps of, hey, you know when, when Jesus got his disciples together, he had a really motley crew of, of followers. They called them apostles. And you know what? One of those apostles was um, a guy called um, Matthew. And he was a tax collector. Can you believe that? And not only was he, uh, did he have Matthew on his team, but he also had, uh, what was his name? He had uh, Simon, who was a zealot, who was a terrorist. They used to walk around, zealots used to walk around with long cloaks and and kind of mingle with the crowd, and then they'd see a tax collector or a Roman. They'd have these long daggers up their sleeves, and they would go and stab them and then just disappear into the the crowd. Simon used to kill people like Matthew, but Jesus pulled these different types of personalities onto onto his team. And these people who were planning this church in Antioch were saying to themselves, what does that mean for us today? They would have talked about Jesus welcoming tax collectors and sinners, those who were on the outside. And they'd ask themselves, what does that that mean? What does that mean for us 
that Jesus embraced people that, that nobody else wanted anything to do with. Does that mean that we should welcome non-Jews? They obviously came to that conclusion. They were trying to work through, they were trying to contextualize or make sense of the message and the model that Jesus had presented. And so they would tell the, story, the Jesus story and they were asking themselves, what does all this mean for us? And it began to inform the way they did church. It began to inform the kinds of people they selected for leadership. I am eternally grateful that I first, as a non-Christian, walked into the doors of a church that was a bit like Antioch, where anyone was welcome. I've got no idea what colour my hair was the first time I walked into that church. I've gotten, I can't recall what I was wearing. I walked into a, an old-time Italian Pentecostal church of about 40 people, mainly older, older folks who were from, um, from Sicily and Calabria. They were, they were uh, it's not being disrespectful, they were primarily peasant folk. And in I walked. I was nothing like them. We, we hardly were able to communicate. But those old nonnas saw me with whatever colour my hair was, and that didn't matter to them. They saw me regardless of what I was wearing. That didn't matter. And they said, Steve, um, come eat. Come to my house and eat. I'm so grateful for people who understood the spirit of Antioch. The spirit of this church, was, which was founded on this idea that difference was okay. You are different, but that's okay. You're still welcome. We've considered you to be an outsider, but that, uh, in Christ, that no longer counts. You can come and you can be with us. You can worship with us. You can eat with us. For us at Bayview... And I'm convinced um, this has got to be one of the most welcoming churches that I've, I, I've certainly uh, ever been in. Um, but as I look around, it's fairly homogenous, isn't it? It's easy to welcome people who are like us. Relatively similar socioeconomic background, relatively similar kind of um, uh, values and ethics and kind of whatever. But it's worthwhile reflecting on how we can embrace and be open to greater levels of diversity. What does the message and the model of Jesus say to us about embracing difference and welcoming the outsider. You see, our issue today has nothing to do uh, with whether a person is circumcised or uncircumcised. That was dealt with 2,000 years ago, a little bit less than that. 
That's not the issue. And what I want us um, to do during morning tea today, and this is an idea that um, I, I got from, from uh, Darren, a suggestion from Darren, is that during morning tea today, um, why don't we have, as we're having coffee, ask which groups within our neighbourhood are not represented or underrepresented, up underrepresented at Bayview? What cultural groups or age groups or socioeconomic uh, uh, groups? What kind of person whose loves and passions are different to ours are, are not here or underrepresented? And how can we reach out to them? And what can we do to be a place of welcome for people who are nothing like us? The Jew-Gentile issue was resolved a long time ago. But what is the Jew-Gentile issue for us today in our context, in our society? Let me finish with a, a quote from uh, Jonathan Sachs, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. The test of faith is whether I can make space for difference. Can I recognize God's image in someone who is not my image, whose language, faith, ideals are different from mine? If I cannot, then I have made God in my image instead of allowing him to remake me in his.